Hello. Welcome to today's episode of Juicing the Numbers, your statistics and sports podcast. I am one of your hosts, Joshua Tracy. And I am one of your hosts, Corwin Heller. And we are both of your hosts, Josh and Corwin. And uh, <laughs> and it is, uh, it is Sunday, September 19th, 530 here on the East Coast. So the um, one o'clock games in the NFL have concluded. Um, the one o'clock games in the MLB, the, in MLB have concluded. Uh, so we are well on our way towards seeing how the playoff picture shakes out for uh, MLB, specifically the AL East, as we close our show talking about last episode and uh, seeing getting a feel for what our respective teams might be in store for for the course of this season for the NFL. So, Corwin, maybe we'll start there. Sure. Um, all right. So your Steelers are currently sitting at one and one. They are. Uh, tell me. uh I, I didn't watch these games. What what do you make of the Steelers? Because there's been a lot of discussion and discourse around the Steelers. Big defensive contract given out mm-hmm. this past very recently in the offseason and an yes. aging Ben Roethlisberger. So lots of storylines there. Yes. What's been going on? Uh, well, the defense is as we expected it would be. Um, pretty dominant, pretty locked down. Two pretty big injuries today. Tyson Aluwalu, uh left with the leg injury, lower leg injury. Um, haven't seen any timetable for him. And TJ Watt left the game with a groin injury. Um, left, I want to say, early in the second quarter, late in the first, after getting a sack and just was out for the rest of the game. Went in for halftime, came out in street clothes. So that's terrifying, um, regardless of his you know recent signing. It uh, doesn't really matter to me as much as it's, I want him on the field. I don't care that we gave him a ton of money and he's not playing. I just want him on the field. Um, On the other side of the ball, the demise of Big Ben Roethlisberger has been uh, overstated. He looks not just as he always has, but he has looked better than he did the last time we saw him. He looks like the quintessential old Big Ben who's still standing in the pocket, still just chucking balls downfield, just breaking sacks and and somehow making stuff happen and also making just outrageous downfield downfield decisions and creating turnovers as you would expect um the big issue has come with the fact that the Steelers offensive line uh has not been overstated uh with just how young and ineffective they were expected and believed to be um they are just not really able to do much in the run game able to do some but not great things um in the passing game so that'll definitely be a concern especially if uh, you know guys start dropping in with injury uh our starting right guard try turner was ejected today in the fourth quarter for spitting on another player Oof. yeah so that's one of those things where it's like i can't be too worried that you know it's injury related and he'll be out for a long time but at the end of the day that's almost certain to get you a nice little suspension, uh, if not a significant fine. And the fact that anytime you have a player on your team spitting on an opposing team, that's fucked up. And uh, you don't want to see that on your fucking team. So that's been lovely. That's been the Steelers. Beat a very good Bills team. Lost to a not as good Raiders team, uh, but still pretty good. So that's what I got there. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the Bills turn out in their third game, just as a slight deviation, since they lost to you guys and then just 
I mean, assaulted the Dolphins 35 to nothing today. Yes, which was terrifying just because I thought the, I mean, granted, uh, Tua leaving with an injury is always a cause for concern and a very good reason why they would be underperforming offensively today. But I kind of liked a, a breakout of the Dolphins offense. So that is not ideal. You know what tweet always bothers me every year? It's the early week NFL early NFL week season um, tweet from, you know, it's like Schefter, whoever um, making a spectacle of like all the players that get injured. And it's like this week we saw, and then they'll list like 12 players get injured. Like it's like wild that this many players got injured. And it's like, no, it's not that that's to be, it's awful, but it's like, that's what we should like. It's not weird that they're getting hurt. That's the sport. Mm -hmm. It's it's tragic that that's the sport. Like if that was if that happened in MLB, that would be like, what the fuck is happening? Mm-hmm. Like there was, I don't know, like like six or some odd pitchers that got hurt in the beginning of the 2020 MLB season after there was like that delay because of COVID and it didn't start till like what was that July or some shit. And Something, you know, yeah. a handful of pitchers got hurt and everyone was, you know, not nearly to the extent of the players that get number of players that get injured in the NFL. And people were like, oh, shit, what's causing this? You know, but no one ever digs deep into what's causing all these injuries in the NFL because we fucking know it's a brutal ass sport. And it, it feels it feels almost like shock journalism to point out all the injuries. It's like, no, we we fucking know. Like, here's nine players that got hurt today. Also, it rained uh, and also water is still wet. Like, I, I mean, I, I get it. Be more meaningful with your analysis here other than, oh, wow, look at all these players that done got hurt. Yeah, it is one of those things where, yes, there's been an uptick of injuries. And yes, that kind of comes with conditioning issues that you have from having incomplete and also non-traditional OTAs and training camps because of COVID protocols and just so many other things that might prevent complete conditioning that you would expect midseason. Yeah, these guys are going to pull most like the more you bulk up bulk up excuse me the easier it is for you to get a you know soft tissue muscle injury ligament injury because of how those muscles are pulling on the structure of your body we've seen studies on this we've know that it's caused more injuries and we keep you know pushing the nfl towards these you know super athletes and and against you know not against, but leaning back towards athleticism and away from technique, you're going to have more guys significantly pushing towards increasing muscle mass, increasing speed, things like that. And that's just going to lead to more soft tissue injuries. Um, and that's kind of what we've been seeing over the last several years. And again, it's a combat sport. It's not like these guys are sprinters and are pulling hammies, you know, running 40 yard dashes. It's like they're getting hurt when they're getting hit by 300 pound guys slamming into them like a car accident. So I agree with you. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is kind of it is kind of funny to see. Why is everyone getting hurt while 500 pound men are just colliding at full speed? But uh, you'll see guys take hits like in games. And it's you think about it, like if I was that quarterback, if I was that running back or that wide receiver, you know, getting just sp- by an opposing defensive 
end or a linebacker or safety just coming across the field while I'm trying to catch a ball in midair. It's like, yeah, that would break me in half. My bones would shatter. That's one of the things that I've definitely appreciated more as I have aged without doing a lot of physical activity. I want to put it that way because I'm not old, but I also don't do much. We're kind of old. Like like I slid uh, the other week um, trying to field a fly ball in softball. And this is this is slow pitch softball, you know, but the, the ground was wet and I ate shit. And so it wasn't like a, a big eat shit. Like I didn't die, but um, like I came up and I was like, oh, geez, that sucked. <laughs> like my my left side like hurts. My hip hurts like that was not good at all. And even on the plays where like a wide receiver doesn't get knocked down, but like gets shoved and like does one of those tumbles and like slides forward five feet or whatever. And then just like springs up and jogs in. I'm like, how dude, I gently fell playing softball and almost died. And you are running full speed and like just getting back up. It is definitely something I'd be in appreciation for. I was crouching at work this week, working on something. And my, the thing I was standing on slid out from under me and I fell on my ass maybe a foot and a half, maybe. And just falling on my ass on some concrete was like, ah, I got to sit out for a sec, guys. Ah, oh, geez. Oh, that could have hurt. Oh, that's going to be sore for a while. And it's like, oh, man, I'm 24, like freshly 24. I shouldn't be 80 right now, but I am. It's one of those things where like you see like adults, like older people in their 30s, like, complaining about being sore and just waking up old one day and it's like ha you're an old bum that should never happen that doesn't happen to me ever and then you just wake up one day exactly like they say and it just happens and it's like oh okay i saw i saw a tweet this week that was like uh one day you didn't get a good night's sleep and then you've been tired ever since and I was like, oh, no, that definitely happened. I I don't think I've ever caught up on a night's sleep. Like, I, there was one night, maybe, maybe in 2014, that I didn't sleep so great. And I'm feeling that today. It spiraled out of control. Yes. Oh, my God, yes. Oh, anyway, uh, in, in talking about other disappointments, the Jets lost today. Um, they lost t- 25 to 6. Uh, I had the score up, not the tab I was on. Yeah, that was right. To the Patriots, they scored uh, two field goals in the second and fourth quarter. So um, barely by the skin of their teeth. And uh, Zach Wilson went 19 for 33 for 210 yards, uh, no touchdowns and four interceptions. Good for a 37 quarterback rating. Now, I will give Zach Wilson a pass on two of the interceptions I saw because one of them was a tip up with you know, and those are random as fuck when they get tipped up. And usually it's in the defense's favor because the wide receivers spread out a little bit more to run their routes and the defense clusters in the middle of the field because you have your, you know, safeties and your linebackers and your cornerbacks. So that one, I, I am ready to forgive the one that Corey Davis just didn't catch. I will also forgive because it's like, why should Zach Wilson have to account for the man 10 feet behind Corey Davis? When if Corey Davis caught the ball, that man would be irrelevant. Um, if he was 10 feet in front of Corey Davis and that guy intercepted the ball and you go, all right, well, that's just a horrible throw, which is what happened like for the third interception that I do not forgive. Um, but the one where Corey Davis, like just let it go directly through his hands. Uh, yeah, I blame Corey Davis for that one, but the stat sheet will still look ugly. 
Um, the thing that's really stuck out stood out to me though that feels exactly like what the Jets did with Sam Darnold. And I know you didn't watch the game, so um, I guess you're partially just taking my word for this. Is I think, and maybe I can pull up the splits um, stats when I'm looking at it, but I think in the first half, Zach Wilson had like 12 throws. And I know they weren't great throws, and he had like three interceptions in the first half. I, I, I get that. But at the same time, that's, that's not a lot at all. And Especially if for you're a rookie QP in his second start on a team that is still the Jets, no matter how much they have improved on paper. And, you know, in the first quarter, you're, you're, I know you're not down by, by a ton necessarily, but there, there, there's no hurry up in 12 throws. And that's the problem I have with it is when, when we had, because we did the exact same thing with Sam Darnold. It was like, well, he's not playing so hot, so we're not going to let him throw. And it's like, well, we're down by a score, so we're not going to risk being down by more by causing interceptions. And then it's like, well, now it's the fourth quarter, and we're down by like three scores, so now we have to throw. And now all of a sudden, he's throwing 20 passes in the fourth quarter because you need yardage, and now you play with hurry up when you're down by like a million and the game's out of reach anyway. Correct. And I don't see how you're going to acclimate a quarterback to the league if you do that. And that's my problem with it. If if this was a guy, if this was Luke Falk when he had to make starts for us when Sam Darnold had mono, all right, like, you know, 12 throws in the first half, who, who gives a fuck? Like, he's a short-term, a short, short-term solution. Like, the next three games solution. Um, but, I mean, this is a guy that you want to get used to being in this league. And how do you develop a rhythm if you're throwing 12 passes in an entire half of football? And when they're not even good, you know, it feels very like stick and carrot in the worst type of way where it's like, uh, we know you're not playing well, so we're not going to let you play more, which it, it's like you can't get a job unless you have five years experience, but you can't get the experience unless you get a job, but you can't get a job without five. years. It's, it's like this never ending loop, but loop of yes. like he's not playing well, so we're not going to play him, but he's not going to get better unless we give him more chances to pass. But he, we're not going to let him pass until he gets better. And it's like. Just let him iron out, not in garbage time. Yes. Oh, Which sorry. I will say there is something that can be had from garbage time with, hey, pressure's off. Let's go back and try and make some of these throws. You know, prove to yourself that you can make those throws. Build your confidence back up. That can definitely help. But at the same time, you just got to. You just got to trust your guy. Second overall pick, he's going to have growing pains. You just got to trust him and let him keep working through it. Yeah, I, I mean, it sounds reductionist, but I mean, that's really all there is to it. Uh, I mean, because, it, again, it's the same thing with Sam Darnold. I would rather see my quarterback throw four interceptions over the course of a game, like this exact stat line, basically, with more attempts at doing stuff spread out throughout the game, more of a clear plan mm -hmm. so he can work on the decision-making than just sporadic attempts at getting him to move the ball. Like very, very intermittent and almost random, overly scripted. You know what I mean? Process over results. Right. Right. Because look, 
we're the, we're Jets fans, not you, but I mean like the Royal we. The Royal we. Yeah. Um, as Jets fans, we're we expect nothing. We expect absolutely nothing. You do not need to manage this game like you're the San Francisco 49ers and people are expecting you to win. Mm-hmm. We expect nothing. The fact that you didn't get into accidents on the way to the field is like enough, you know? And so the idea that like you had to manage this game as the coach in a way to like prevent too much damage or whatever, keep it close for a late in late inning, late uh, game rally. No, no, you don't go out there and treat this game. Tell all your players we are out there to improve so that we can make a run at some point in the season so we can figure out our offense against regular, you know, a real competition, not just mm-hmm. in practice. We're going to do goofy. Like the fact that Bill Belichick let Mac Jones do a flea flicker. It was a, it was a snap to Mac Jones. He uh, handed it off or passed it over to James White. I forget mm-hmm. what the uh, uh, handoff was situation was there. James White then passed it back to Mac Jones, who then passed it downfield for 19 yards. The fact that Bill Belichick, stodgy, old, hard-ass Bill Belichick would do that for his rookie guy, but Zach Wilson has to deal with running on first and 10, every single first and 10, and then trying to force passes later on is ridiculous. Let the kid have fun. Not even have fun, but again, put him in situations to succeed. Like running the ball on first down, Guess what? Best case scenario, you know, you run for five yards. Okay. Second and short, you can do anything. Okay. Whatever happens, third and short, third and long, whatever. You got a first down. Great. Worst case scenario is also the most likely scenario where you have a short run where it's now second and long and you have to throw it. It's just one of these things that we've seen just get pointed out more and more Warren Sharp is huge on Twitter about this and how success rate for teams that pass on first down versus running it on first down is just like the numbers are there. It's like baseball where it's like, it's not nearly as one-to-one that baseball is, but it's such a clear pattern and such a clear correlation and relationship. It's ridiculous that you wouldn't at this point, you can't do it every down. Or you can't do it every, you know, first down. You can't because that becomes super predictable. At the same time, if you're actively doing something that's less likely to succeed over and over and over again, guess what? Rule of numbers. I don't know the actual name of that rule. You're more likely or you're less likely to succeed. Yeah, there you go. That was Penn State's just status quo for decades of just we're going to run the ball a gap every single first down and it's infuriating it's yeah. absolutely infuriating yep and it's also there's there's just such an astonishing lack of inspiration like it's it's also the conservativeness of it running on first and 10 is conservative enough but there's also other like i don't want to see you trying to run for one yard on third and one what the fuck is that Mm-hmm. I don't want to see the like the jumbo formation on third and one on your own 45 to try to eke out one yard to go get, you know, a new set of downs. Like 
you have shown that you were able to get nine yards and two downs doing something else. Do that. Why settle for one yard? It's like choking up on, on, on three and out. Like, what's the fucking point? Like you, you got nine yards. You hit a home run. Your last at bat. Why would you come in against the same pitcher and choke up? Fucking do something. Yep. Keep your foot on the gas. Same thing. So one of the, the jets, um, their, their first field goal, I actually pulled it up because I wanted to see how far out it was. Um, it was a 21 yard field goal. They were at, they were at like fourth and I don't know, not a lot. We'll say fourth and then two mm-hmm. on the Patriots own. Uh, we'll also say not a lot. Um, five, four, three, something like that. Play. And they decided to, to, to hit the kick a field goal. And it's like, look, I understand the conservative argument for that of we're down 10, nothing. We need a field goal anyway if we're going to potentially tie the game at some point. Got to get our offense on the board, blah, 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 blah. At the same time, my opinion, fuck yourself in the ass. I don't give a shit. Go for a touch. Worst case scenario. Worst case scenario. You don't get a touchdown. That's sad. So now the Patriots have to start their offensive drive on their own four-yard line. Mm -hmm. That's awful. (laughs) That's awful. You, you win the battle of field position, which you can then use in another drive later on. Right. I, I mean, getting, I'd rather you try to, to, to run a red zone offense drill in that short yardage than kick a fucking field goal in the late goings of the second quarter. And it's one of those things where you are the New York Jets playing against the New England Patriots who have shown no signs of being a poor team like with the Mac Jones era starting, he's shown to be very capable, even as a rookie. You need to make those kind of plays. You need to make those aggressive decisions in order to have an upset to win the game. At the end of the day, if you play these two teams or you have these two teams play 10 times, the Patriots are going to win seven. Oh, more than that, please. I'm just saying, you know, yeah. probability statistics. There's always going to be times where even playing conservative, Patriots are going to fuck up. Jets are going to make some big plays. A conservative number is 70% of the time. Sure. Which in the NFL with all the parity, that's that's a really, really good number. If you're not playing aggressive, your 30% chance isn't going up. You're just asking to be handed games. That's not how you improve. You win games on the margin, and if you're not trying to create your own margin, you're going to lose all these games. Sure. Yeah. I understand that. Sure. Big words. And it's like with, with the chances, Belichick, he was the king of calling for the QB sneak with Tom Brady. Mm-hmm. That's a risky-ass play. That's a gamble every single time you do it. And they, do, they, yep. they were fucking a famous duo doing that shit all the time. I'm willing to bet that if we ran the numbers on it, like a statistically significant number of Tom Brady's uh, touchdowns are from QB sneaks. Like I would be willing to put money on that. Yeah. He was just so effective at that one yard off center in between, you know, a gap again, just squeezing in there. And part of it comes from the, the confusion and the uncertainty, which you won't build. If you play it the normal way, conservative is also predictable. Absolutely. Conservative is 100% predictable. 
and predictability is just the the enemy of effective football i mean you see it so much everyone's talking about pre-snap motion move your guys around see what the defense has you know make them think about it because at the end of the day that's how you create an advantage when you're unpredictable that's just how it works Ah, and it's 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 more important in the nfl than anything like not saying you can be get away with being fully predictable in the in uh, in MLB, but at the same time, Mariano Rivera amassed more saves than anybody else in human history, and he had one pitch. <laughs> so it's a I mean, very effective pitch. <laughs> and you know what? I bet you can you can win some games doing things predictably, but very very effectively. But why would you want to bank on that? Conform right. to your guys and your talent. And like, I just gotta unless say, you're Alabama playing an FCS school, which they all always do you're not going to be able to win just playing it safe and letting your five-star athletes beat up on guys that would not even be walk-ons at your school i'm a five-star man <laughs> i am a golden god i gotta say as, as a closing thought on on uh week two of our respective teams nfl seasons um there is a lot of irony in all of this complaining considering that the jets have been trying to get this um, motto going of all gas, no breaks. And they have had the most lukewarm coaching, the most, Ooh, I'm not sure coaching I've ever, I, I mean, mm-hmm. this is, this is basically Adam Gase so far. This is the exact same way that he ran these games. And if that man wasn't halfway on the brake pedal while driving, I don't, I don't know who was, I mean, you cannot call yourself all gas, no breaks when you don't go for it on fourth and nothing, um, on your opponent's four yard line, that is literally breaks. <laughs> like, oh god. Thankfully, uh, the Steelers' offense is only predictable in that they do exactly what they always do, which is perform just well enough to kind of stay in it, but never well enough to really put it away. Which, hey, Steelers football. Uh, predictability uh, is really nice for fans that just know what they're going to get. I, I, I guess results. so. You can brace yourself a little bit with, uh, I, I, as a, as a Jets fan, I can brace myself. It's so funny because, um, you know, Cal and I were actually talking about going to this game and I was like, no, I was like, I know it's completely different quarterbacks for both teams, a new coaching staff. The Jets might actually have a chance, but I was like, I've, I've seen this episode way too many times. Like if, if we go in there and we get creamed, like I, I can't handle that. And of course it's exactly what happened. What was the final score? 25 to six. Yep. That's how that happens. Yep. Yeah. Just ugly, ugly, ugly. I kind of just to transition to another game I watched this weekend. That's kind of a thought I had with the Penn State Auburn game, the whiteout this weekend, which I was lucky enough to get tickets to. Um, actually, it was, my first, it was my first game as an alumni. First oh, shit. Was Penn it really? Yeah. Not as a student. Yeah. I mean, wow. I've been there as a non-student prior, but now as an alumni, it's my first game. And it was one of those things where it's like, yeah, Penn State's a top 10 team. Auburn's, you know, 22, I think they were. By all means, we should win. Great defense. 
good enough offense, good new offensive coordinator. And it's like watching the teams take the field. It was like, oh, Auburn is a massive team from the SEC. This could be an awful experience. Like we have a hard enough time really closing out games against, you know, Big Ten teams, SEC. They have their reputation for a reason. Um, but hey, it worked out. It was a really great game. Um, I guess we can go into it a little bit. Uh, kind of the one thing I wanted to talk about with the Penn State whiteout is it was so abundantly clear what a crowded, energetic stadium full of fans can do for a team regardless of the performance on the field. I just There was one clear play where the Auburn Tigers were in the red zone driving Penn State's defense, really couldn't stop the run, and there is a fumble on the sideline that resulted in like an 80-yard return for a touchdown by one of our cornerbacks. Just ball popped out right into his hands and just stormed down the field to um, extend the lead to what would be a likely incredibly difficult um, cliff for Auburn to climb. And the crowd went wild. I mean, it's a whiteout atmosphere. It's the best atmosphere in all of college football, you know, for a whiteout game at night against, you know, a major opponent like Auburn. And the crowd just went ballistic, as loud as I've ever seen them. And the play ended up getting called back. The guy was down, took back, took the points off the board. It was like a two, three minute review. They were, they surely got it right. You know, we saw the replay. It was, fairly clear that he was down. It's not like it was a wild call. And at the end of the day, as even though there was absolutely no change from what you would expect from that play, the guy going down, no return whatsoever. But the fact that we saw that return and regardless of its effect on the end of the game, the crowd was so energetic for the rest of that drive, completely halted Auburn in their tracks, completely halted them. I think they walked away without a single point ended up, you know, going forward on fourth down at like the two yard line and just couldn't, couldn't convert. And it was a hundred percent because of the atmosphere and the energy that the stadium brought because Penn state could not stop them leading up to that. And it's one of those things where you have a game in Cleveland five years ago, you have a game in Miami three, four years ago, you have a game in Oh, what's a, or San Diego when they were playing that soccer stadium and could barely get 20,000 people to show up. There's nothing that kind of builds momentum for you in those kind of situations. There's nothing kind of juicing up that home team. Whereas you go to Seattle, you go to Kansas City, you're in Foxborough in December. The energy that those crowds bring, it has a major effect on these games. And I think that's something that people talk about but when we talk about the game itself it's not really something that's factored in like you always hear about oh how loud seattle is how you know crazy that atmosphere is how loud it gets in kansas city the effects fans have in philadelphia or foxborough or pittsburgh and all these places that have just well-known fan bases you get talked about 
But when we're talking and breaking down the game afterwards, that's not really something anyone ever discusses. And I feel like it should be. I mean, the whiteout last year or two years ago, two years ago against Michigan, the first play of the game, Michigan had to call it, uh, got flag or had to call a timeout because they couldn't snap the ball because their center could not hear the quarterback in the shotgun calling for the play, calling for the snap. It has a major impact and it's unbelievable to see in person. I, I think that drives at one of the underlying conversations around the idea of stuff like, like clutch or whatever, because it's, it's often like, and you hear this with, with baseball all the time uh, and you hear it with other sports too. They play better at home. Uh, mm-hmm. Everyone, everyone seems to hit better at home in baseball. Everyone seems to pitch better at home in, in baseball. Um, your favorite NFL team usually wins a few more games at home than they do on the road. Mm-hmm. And obviously the you know, road lack of performance for a lot of teams can come down to Rockies. <laughs> uh, can come down to, you know, the players had a shitty flight or it's a break in routine or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, that's also part of what, what makes it's the part of the off the field stuff that makes your home success success. And, you know, the idea that being home allows you to feel more comfortable, I'm sure, is one thing to have your routine be the way you want it uh, or to Mm -hmm. perhaps say play in front of your fans and feed off that energy Um, that I obviously if it didn't have a factor, I don't think we would see the crazy splits that we often see for people's home and away records or home and away performances, which we accept as sports fans and sports analysts pretty readily as being normal. It's weirder when teams don't perform well at home than when they perform um, poorly on the road. Like it's more of a conversation around, Ooh, uh, the, the chiefs haven't won a single game at home this year. That's super fucking weird. I think that actually happened a few years ago. I think they were like, like one in five at home and then like eight and one on the road or some shit like that. There was one NFL team that had like some stupid, crazy split like that. And it was a conversation piece because that shit never happens. And I think, you know, again, we can chalk up the reason to whatever you want to chalk it up to. Flights are harder, time zone adjustments. You're playing in Denver and the air's thin, fucking whatever. But yeah, I mean, like you said, atmosphere is a big part of that. Atmosphere is theoretically everything. So theoretically, to, yeah. to say that the, the the fans, whether it's as obvious as the center can't hear the snap or as subtle as uh, the guy who bangs the drum in a stadium. And um, I, I'm a pitcher and I just like that drum. You know, like it doesn't fucking matter, really. What matters is that those are your fans contributing to you in some type of way. Speaking of drums, Notre Dame played Purdue this off or this week. And Purdue has this giant drum that their band brings with them to home games and brings with them on the road called the big drum, essentially. <laughs> and fucking underwhelming. I was so ready for something interesting. <laughs> Dude, I was so ready for it to have some archaic name. And you hit me with they call it the big drum. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, it's like the big gold matter. drum or big Purdue drum, something big like it's fucking it, drum. BFT. Big fucking drum. It really is. And oh, Notre Dame was like, you can't, you can't bring that in the stadium in our main tunnel, 
even though it won't fit in the visitor tunnel. It was just too big to fit into the visitor tunnel to bring onto the field. And Notre Dame's main tunnel that their team goes out of plenty big. And they were like, yeah, sorry, can't use our tunnel. Nope, not going to work. And so they just had the drum outside the stadium that they were just beating on all game. And supposedly there is regulations on opposing teams and home teams even about when you can hit the drum, when you can play music, things like that inside the stadium, because it can be a distraction, you know, obviously inside the stadium, stadium, not an issue outside the stadium, (laughs) although I'm sure for certain reasons, they weren't just bashing the shit out of it. You know, that could lead to some actual problems down the road because the NCAA is, you know, known for such a thing, but really funny storyline. That is amazing. I love that. Everyone was expecting a curse or, you know, blowback like, oh, Notre Dame's fucked because they're going to get cursed by this big fucking drum and then just fucking walloped them. So didn't matter. Curse of the BFD. Curse of the BFD. All right. So we talk about some baseball stuff. I suppose. So it got brief mentioned at the end of last episode, and we thought we'd bring up the beginning, uh, not the beginning, but the beginning of baseball discussion in this one, because we do not always forget the things we mean to address later in future episodes. This is an instance where we have remembered one Uh, and where Josh has remembered one. We I'm giving mutual credit for this. Um, And and that is that the uh, the the topic of if Vlad Guerrero Jr. were to earn a triple crown, would that affect the MVP voting? Now, for anyone who does not recall, and we touched on it very briefly, but I wanted to look at it a little bit more today since we have some time. Um, And for anyone who does not recall, the Triple Crown is when you lead your league in batting average, home runs, and RBIs. Now, as it stands today, and as it stood when we last talked about this just the other fucking day, um, Vlad Guerrero Jr. does currently lead in two out of three of those categories. He does currently lead in batting average, and he currently leads in home runs. He only doesn't lead in um, RBIs. So uh, I guess let's start with the just off the jump take on this. Corwin, what would that change? Because, you know, I I think both of us are pretty in line with the Shohei Otani is going to be the MVP. He has he was the presumptive MVP since, you know, fucking June. Um, so this is a all, the rest of the season is a formality. Um, but what 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 do you think of, of this general argument? Well, just for reference, how far down or how far behind is he in? RBIs. <sighs> Yes, thank you. Words. I'm so glad you asked because I just finished pulling the leaderboard up. <laughs> um, he is nine back of Salvador Perez. So he's currently tied with Rafael Devers with 104. He just needs to pass teammate uh, Teoscar Hernandez with 106. The Chicago White Sox is Jose Abreu with 111. And then the Kansas City Royals, Salvador Perez with 113. So nine back as of yesterday. These scores do not reflect, these totals do not reflect. Um, today's game sunday's games right so that's a that's a lot that's not nothing what would you bank on would you bank on vlad getting only nine more rbis or getting nine more home runs 
which I know is the same thing, but when you think about it in home runs, it somehow feels more possible. <laughs> on one hand, touche. Um, on the other hand, oh, that's tough. Um, because no, nah, it's got to be RBIs, right? Like it, it has to be. I can't in, expect in, him to in have the real nine world, solo yeah. home runs, right? Like, yeah, I could absolutely see him hit five solo home runs, sure. Or nine uh, solo home runs, sure. He did get another home run, another uh, RBI today. So that there, that's something. So that's now it's, it should be 105 now. Which, granted, I don't know how the other guys are doing, but. Um, T. Oscar Hernandez didn't get. Well, it's really just Salvador Perez. So do you think, do you think the Blue Jays, if there's a chance they lock up, um, the wild card would just sit Tiasco Hernandez to try and get Vladi a, a easier shot at uh, Perez got crown. none, so he's only eight back. No, if anything, what I, I would imagine that the Blue Jays would do something akin to what the Marlins did for Giancarlo Stanton when he was chasing sixty home runs, because what they what the Marlins did, if I recall correctly, in that twenty seventeen season. Um, he was batting like third or something in, in the in the lineup, uh, you know, so that theoretically uh, a halfway decent Marlins offense would have runners on base for him to hit home runs. Um, and then when it got to the last like two ish weeks of the season or so, they actually started batting him lead off so that he would get a few more plate appearances to potentially hit another home run hmm. to, to get okay. to 60. And I could see maybe the Blue Jays doing something like how oh, Guerrero already bats third in their lineup. I was going to say maybe bumping him down in the lineup to potentially get more runners on for him. Maybe, right. maybe they could switch him and Bichette so that he's batting fourth, but that'd be, sense to me. that'd be the most that they could like. They're not going to tell Teoscar Hernandez to stop hitting. Right. Um, but if, if they move him to lead off, move him down to four, that's not necessarily affecting the team's ability to perform all that much. But at the end of the day, that's still going to be, a statistical increase in their chances to get him the triple crown. Oh yeah. That statistical increase. Oh baby. Ooh, yeah. Overall production does not dip on the whole. Oh, I hate it. <laughs> I hate that so much. The law of averages means it's all okay. <laughs> oh, base hits in the fourth. Don't mean anything other different than the base hits in the second. All right. All you. right. So I agree. I don't think it matters. And if we if we look at what a triple crown is, leading winning a batting title, having the highest batting average, right? Um is nice. Uh, it doesn't really mean anything. Right. Case in point, DJ LeMahieu last few years or a few years ago. He right. has improved greatly. But immediately after winning the batting title, it wasn't like he was a superstar. Right. And let's just see. Um, wow. Can you believe Nick Castellanos has one of the highest is a top 10 batting average in the season? I, did, I don't know. It's fine that he is. I just didn't realize he was that high up. I remember him being high. I don't remember him being still this high. Um. Anyway, that's not what I was looking for. I was looking for Tim Anderson, who won a batting title a few years ago. Yeah, so he won a batting title uh, with a 128 OPS plus. And the 128 OPS plus is, is really solid. Like, that's a really good OPS plus, especially coming from a shortstop. 
but a 128 OPS plus, if we're talking about like MVPs, is nothing. I mean, Vlad Guerrero Jr.'s this season is 178. Uh, let me double check. Really myself. good. Don't get me wrong. 176. Yeah, like that matters. Granted, he's also likely going to win the batting title because he has a very high batting average, but uh, that matters so significantly. We could take Shohei Otani, for instance, instead then, whose batting average is 258, but his OPS plus is 154. You know, like it's it it doesn't translate so neatly the way that stuff more like on base or slugging do as they tie into OPS plus. So batting average is cool, but ultimately doesn't matter nearly as much. Um, that brings us to let's say RBIs next. Uh, sure. Oh boy, who gives a fuck about that? <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Uh, I mean. So you're, you're te- basically, if, if you care about RBIs, you're, you're saying that um, uh, Ricky Henderson's career is useless. Which it is. Not really. Boom. Hot take. <laughs> um, because he was a leadoff hitter his entire fucking career. And leadoff hitters don't get RBIs as at least as yeah. at, at, at as high of a rate as others do, because they don't their first at-bat of the game has nobody fucking on, guaranteed, locked in. What? Like, what do you think Ricky Henderson's high watermark for RBIs in a single season is? Uh, 95. So, for reference, Vlad Guerrero this season is at 104. I'll say 95. That would be 20 too many. 74. Wow. How many runs did he have that season? <laughs> he led all of baseball with 130. <laughs> uh, for reference, double his RBI. Wow. For reference, Vlad Guerrero this season leads all of baseball with 118. Um, so he also still has a lot. Uh, but yeah, Fuck. yeah. Like so, Ricky Henderson's MVP season, which I I honestly can't believe there's only one, but there is. Um, his MVP season in which he led ba- all of baseball in on-base percent and all of baseball in OPS and OPS plus and run scored and stolen bases, mm-hmm. right? So he led the league or baseball in a ton of stuff. In pretty much everything. He had 61 that. RBIs. That's it. That'll be half of whoever has the most RBIs this season. And you know what? Ricky Henderson had a damn good career. And that Pretty was a good, phenomenal say, fucking yeah. year for him, 1990. And that 1990 season will probably be better. I'm not going to say for certain, but it's likely to be better at 9.9 war. Holy fuck. Um, Jesus, that'll be all right. So I can lock it in. That will definitely be a better season than anybody who takes the RBI crown this season. Probably including Vlad. Yeah. I mean, unless Vlad changes the you know, the fact that he was playing center field all year or changing to the fact that he was playing center field all year at a really crazy rate. There's no way he can touch 9.9. Yeah. So I think Corbin, we could say RBIs, who gives a fuck? RBIs, who gives a fuck? What would be a better number that would you, you would, you know what I want? Yeah, no, let's answer that in just a moment. Okay. 
You know because we have I'm one more. I, <laughs> and for for the non-visual uh, watchers, Corwin also pointed at me when he said it, like I was a hooker. Uh, <laughs> Money's on the dresser. Five dollars. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so that brings us to the to the last uh, uh, metric, I guess, included in. A triple crown, which is home runs. And obviously these are all relatively archaic, um, or at least old school in thought because the concept of a triple crown, which has been around mm-hmm. for, uh, has been around for a long time. It, it, I, I'm not sure when it started being kept track of, of who has been doing it, but I'm, I, if you told me it started like 1915, I would go like, yeah, all right, man, that sounds, that sounds right. That sure, sounds yeah. like they did that back then. So, um, but anyway, to include home runs, to talk uh, talking about home runs, this is one. This is the only one I think we still care about, and this is the only one that, if it was included in a modern version of a triple crown, I would go, yeah, yeah, okay, okay, yep, works for me. It's a counting stat, so it'll obviously go towards you know whoever has a combination of the ability to hit home runs and the longevity of playing a full season. Uh, so it, it, it doesn't quite work the same way as like a, a batting average, which again, isn't great, but isn't currently included uh, because you have to qualify. You have to be a qualified hitter but at the same time to lead in home runs. You'd have to play such a significant number of your, um, your team's games that you'll probably meet the threshold of a qualified hitter anyway. So right. it doesn't matter. Um, if you somehow didn't, they might change the rules for you. Yeah, yeah, I they'd probably have to accommodate, wouldn't they? I wonder I what the so, yeah. most home runs is in under a hundred games played, or um, in the fewest games played. Is there a way for us to find this out? Yeah, uh, I think so. All right, all right. So, how many how many games should I put in? Should um, I put in here? 80 games, let's say half a season. No, not greater than or equal to. Less than or equal to. Yes. Ooh, yeah. All right. It's it's a thinking. Uh, Giancarlo Stanton in 2015. How many? 27 in 74 games. Wow. Okay. Uh which actually is less impressive than Matt Olson in 2017 hitting 24 in 59 games. Wow. That is fucking stupid. Um, and Corbin, just to answer some questions that we had had. Uh, oh, no, that's 2020. All right, that doesn't count. Okay. Um, I was going to say Luke Voigt. I saw a, a Leeds led the league thing, but it was 2020. So mm. that's not that's not the same, man. Um, that's just like your opinion, man. Yeah. But uh, 27, that's a lot. That's a fucking lot. Yes, it is. You got me there. I'm actually going to change the games played to um, 100 just to see what changes. Let's see. Oh, I fucked it up. I I fucked it all up. Oh, God. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, I love that. Uh, All right. I fixed it. 
Uh, of course, it's Barry Bonds. Well, no, that's 153 games. I said, I said 100 baseball reference. How dare you do this to me? Yeah, I don't get it. Oh, whatever. I'm not fussing with this anymore. So, all right. So home runs I can buy. Um, however, it's the combination. So I, I think that brings out the conversation of just because we have arbitrary achievements that we like to keep track of because of nostalgia or because they're fun um, or because maybe we do have some level of meaning assigned to them doesn't mean they really mean anything you know right like there's there's lots of achievements in baseball that if you like there's nothing for the guy who leads all of uh who leads their league in triples that's not it's not a thing no one cares about that some people care not the people that really you know sign your contracts or or endorsements or anything like that right i yeah, I mean, same thing with 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 doubles, hits, hits as a whole. People care about that. People keep track of who Very has true. the most hits. There was a uh, Jose Altuve stat for forever about how many times he led all of, led the league in hits. Um, but doubles and triples, no one gives a fuck about. Mm-hmm. Who cares? Yeah, it, it uh, pitchers with the lowest whip. People notice it, and it'll get talked about like eventually. But it's not something they actively kept track of as much as you know like era or even xera at this point right it's something that's talked about almost more as a i want to say uh interesting achievement or as a oh that's neat rather than the actual skill of that player you know where it's like oh wow that's a lot of triples that's a pretty cool statistic not that oh shit he's really good at triples that's awesome congratulations it's like the end of the day that's it doesn't do much right like maybe it's worth bringing up if the guy with the lowest whip in all of baseball was also a Cy Young candidate and you right. go like well here's the case and it includes the fact that he has the lowest whip but to say that someone should win the Cy Young because they have the lowest whip is one just a nonsense argument and two just horrendously lazy e- even even for me that would be lazy right and we're and, lazy. Oh boy, are we lazy? And I think that's also what comes, you know, part and parcel with this conversation is if you were to say that Vlad Guerrero Jr. deserves the MVP, should he win the triple crown? That is just fucking that's just fucking lazy. Because that assumes that because he did that, that he is the better player. And we have so much data information that says it's really cool he did that. Mm-hmm. But he's still not a better player. Right. Like you have a guy who's doing so much more with what you would want from an individual player that I don't know how you can really argue that one is like, it's really cool that he did that. It takes so much talent to be able to do that. It takes a very lower amount of talent of very low much less talent to do that despite it being an outrageous amount of talent than to also lead all of mlb in home runs or your league in home runs or be near that level in home runs and also be an ace level pitcher like that is just so astronomically high in talent level 
that it just cannot come close. Right. And it, and it feels like that because there's not a name for that, like a title we can assign to it, that maybe people don't grasp it. Like there is there's a, a, a regal around um, the Triple Crown. You know, there mm-hmm. there there's a weightiness to it. Whereas you have to say every time you talk about Shohei Otani, you have to be like, and it hasn't been done for a hundred years. And I think the wording, the fact it's not a title, maybe is what make people go, ah, who fucking who fucking cares, man? A hundred years ago, people couldn't fly. We fly now. Um, and it's like, you're right, kind of, but not enough. And boy, is that not a good argument? Uh, and. <laughs> And, and maybe maybe if we had a name for what Shohei Otani did, and it'll probably be like the Shohei Otani after this or some shit like that. Mm-hmm. Um, people would get it, but people don't be getting it. It's just it's so crazy how hard that shit is. It doesn't make any fucking sense. Like, I don't get why you would ever even think you could compare the two when one is something that people do. Don't get me wrong. People have done it. Very few people. And the other thing no one's done in any of our lifetimes, literally ever. But that's what happens. And I know, I know. So it it's an it's worth I think the conversation. Not necessarily because I I think either of our minds would possibly be changed by by this. I mean. Show how Tani is going to win the MVP. That is a good thing for baseball and for um, everyone who likes baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a full 1.2 war more than Vlad Guerrero Jr. That is not going to change in any significant way um, up in, uh, until the season ends. Mm-hmm. But it, it, I think it's, I think it's an interesting enough conversation around why do we care about these things. And because that's the thing, when I hear that like a player on my team is going for a batting title, I am watching for that now. Like right. when when DJ LeMahieu was going up against Tim Anderson for the batting title, or like it was just them, and then a uh, you know fifty feet of crap, and then whoever was next. Right. Um, I was keeping track of like, did Tim Anderson get a hit today? And I was watching DJ LeMahieu's at bats. Like I care about batting average for the next like two months because I want a player on my team to have this. Which shouldn't be that crazy of a thing as a fan. Right. But we're fans. Yeah. Like if, 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 you know, uh, someone on the Orioles is going for it, I'd probably go, Ooh, that's nifty. And then I wouldn't give a shit. Um, There was a guy on my team. So it's like, yeah, I'm going to root for that. But if he doesn't get it, which DJ Mayhew didn't that year that Tim Anderson did, then um, I I wasn't like, ah, fuck. He's useless. Mm -hmm. Couldn't win a batting title. Dumb bitch. And turns out he was just useless, but just two years later. Touche. <laughs> so it's again, like if it wasn't for the fact that we have these discussions because we have a podcast where we discuss this, I think I'd have the same feeling of it's really cool if, you know, the guy who is a pitcher is leading MLB in home runs, or it's really cool that a guy won a triple crown at 22 years old. I would love to see that. That'd be cool to see. I'm not going to watch every game because of it. Like it's not going to affect my watching of the game. 
No, no. I'll probably. Yeah. If her name I mean, Tatis was doing it, sure. But true. Yeah, <sighs> like I'm. Yeah. I'm not going to start checking the MLB app to see if um, Vlad Guerrero gets RBIs the way I did today, just to like kind of see. Like, I'm. I'm. I'm not going to keep doing that. That, no. that there's nothing in that for me, and there shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Wholeheartedly agree. So I am just looking through to see when the last time was, if it had ever happened, a player had won the triple crown and not won MVP. And so far I'm back to 1942, which actually I guess is the year. Okay. I found it. So the last time that an MLB player won a triple crown and didn't win MVP was 1942. Wow, pre-World War One, two. <laughs> nope, nope, you had it right the first time. <laughs> so Ted Williams in 1942 led all of baseball in uh, runs scored, home runs, RBIs, walks, on-base percent, slugging, OPS, o- OPS plus, and total bases, and then also led only the AL in uh, batting average, but. Uh, his batting average of 356. Go fuck yourself. Um, his RBIs of 137 and his home runs of 36. That was the triple crown. He finished second in MVP voting. Who did he lose MVP to? Corwin, would you have any guess who beat out Ted Williams for MVP in 1942? Joe DiMaggio. As a good guess, Joe DiMaggio really? did win MVP in 47. But no, it was not handsome Joe DiMaggio. Who was it? It was a different Yankee. Really? Yeah. Joe Gordon. Famous. Never heard of him before. Good, in my old, life. good old Joe Gordon. What, what, it's wild that I don't know Joe Gordon by offhand either. And he has uh, one, two, three, four, five top 10 MVP finishes, including winning one of them. Um is in the Hall of Fame. It was a nine-time All-Star and won five World Series. And I don't think that's a that's factor of Joe Morgan. I think that, or Joe Gordon, I already got his name wrong. Um, I don't think that's a, a matter of Joe Gordon not being memorable. I think it's the fact of like how ridiculously stacked these eras of Yankees teams were that you're going to lose a guy like Joe Gordon in the shuffle. But anyway, um, yeah, so I don't, I don't, I'm looking at these numbers, my friend, and I don't, I don't understand. Ted Williams got shafted. <laughs> really? Yeah. So the only two things that Joe Gordon led baseball in or led his league in that season um, were striking out the most and grounding into double plays the most. And those were two <laughs> very bad things yeah. to lead your league in. And those led him to an MVP. Um, he, 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 he was a good player that year. His slash line was 322, 409, 491. That's a 900 OPS and a 155 OPS plus, which was the highest of his career. Um, he also had 18 home runs, four triples, 29 doubles, and walked 79 times. But, I mean, Ted Williams' OPS plus that season was 216. <laughs> Joe Gordon's was 155. What? I mean, I get it. It's Ted Williams, but 216? 
Yeah, and that's actually a dip because the year before at 1941, where Ted Williams also finished second in MVP voting, fuck you, um, was 235. Sure. Sure. Okay, so 1941, he lost to Joe DiMaggio, um, which that's just heartbreaking. <laughs> um, Joey D, who had had a good season that year, he had an OPS plus of 185, which, you know, is very fucking good. So I guess maybe you can't excuse it. I, I mean, Ted Williams led in basically every category that matters, but um, 40. Ooh. All right, so hold on. So in 1941. Let's do some baseball history. Ted Williams received. Oh, it wasn't even close. Uh, uh, Joe DiMaggio got 15 first place votes to Ted Williams is eight. And wow. his percent of vote share for Joey D was 87 to Ted Williams is 76. Uh, going by vote points, because as we all know, points are ranked one through 10 mm-hmm. um, based on where you put them on your MVP voting sheet. Uh, Joe DiMaggio received 291 vote points and Ted Williams received 254. So really, I mean, like not even close. And so maybe, so let's look at, uh, let's look at 42 then. Maybe it's better. Oh, hey, look. The meaning of life? No, it's not. Um, somehow it's worse. I'm pretty sure 42 is the meaning of life. It might be. Um, so Ted Williams received more MB first place votes. Uh, Joe Gordon got 12. Ted Williams got nine. So he, he, he gained a little bit of ground in the first place votes. But as a total of vote share, he did worse than in 41. Uh, Joe, Gordon, Joe Gordon got 270 point vote points. So Ted Williams is 249, which means that Joe Gordon got 80% of the vote share and Ted Williams got 74. That's just fucking nuts. That's, those are big numbers. That's fucking that, those nuts. Are big, those are just big numbers. I, oh, wow. I mean, Ted Williams got fucking shafted, man. Wow. But anyway, so I guess that would be the last time that this would have happened if, if Vlad Guerrero uh, wins the Triple Crown and does not win MVP. That um, it'll be the first time since 1942. And everyone can be angry. And, and this has happened actually several times in the show where we have been like, hey, when's the last time this thing happened? And we looked it up. And then, like, Jeff Passon or somebody released an article about it, like, three days after the episode came out. And I guarantee you, locking it in now, that if this happens sometime afterwards, there will be an article being like, was Ted Williams robbed of an MVP in 1942 when he won a Triple Crown and didn't win MVP? And this podcast will have had it first, folks. Right here. Can, like, if... if this happens you call your shot you hit the home run can we tweet it jeff pass and be like why do you listen to our show and then steal our content get really <laughs> yeah, angry at bitch. the best twitter baseball writer of you know all of twitter oh man that'd be pretty funny let's do it but all right uh there was more talk uh the Yankees are probably going to miss the playoffs, so we figured we'd talk about that. But we're running a little bit long. Corn and I have other things to do. There's more NFL games to watch, and you know life must go on. So we're probably going to get to those things. So we'll save the Yankees' demise for probably our midweek episode when um, one would assume that they have lost more games and somehow put themselves even farther out of the playoff spot. But uh, I was just going to say, like, I don't think the narrative will change much in the next two, three days. 
Yeah, I I, uh, I wouldn't think so either, but I, I guess we will find out. Um, so stay stay tuned, y'all. Um, y'all. But in the meantime, if you'd like to follow the show, you can do so at Juicing Pod. If you'd like to uh, follow Corwin on Twitter, you can do so at Corwin Heller. And if you'd like to follow myself on Twitter, you can do so at Joshua D. Tracy. If you'd like to send emails to the show, you can do so at juicingthenumbers at gmail.com. And uh, until Thursday... Y'all have a good one. Bye.